Uh, we're going to continue uh, talking about spiritual gifts, and I'm just going to, some things I'm going to say here, kind of a review a little bit from last week um, that uh, we've talked about spiritual gifts for the last few weeks. And so remind you that in weeks past, uh, and this is just a way that the Bible doesn't divide them up like this, the Bible just speaks about spiritual gift, uh, and, but it's helpful sometimes in referring to spiritual gifts and differentiating sometimes the different ones. You have uh, serving gifts, speaking gifts, and sign gifts. Usually the serving gifts, there's no issue there. Gifts of helps and mercy and service and, and those things. There's usually no controversy, no issue. Speaking gifts, uh, depending on how you, uh, certainly teaching is a speaking gift. Those who, uh, and again, remember several weeks back, we walked through the various passages on that speak about specifically spiritual gifts. So again, if you missed anything there, uh, you can go online and catch up with that. But when it comes to prophecy, that's a little controversial, so it depends. The reason I have maybe there, it depends on how maybe we interpret what uh, prophecy is and whatnot. And then there's the sign gifts. Those are things that are more demonstrable gifts, such as uh, healing, miracles, uh, tongues, languages uh, that the Holy Spirit gives. And so generally, that's where some have said, oh, no, 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 there's, you know, we're, we're not continuing to do that today. That's where sometimes the controversy is. And we talked a little bit about this last week, that uh, generally in the, what we would say, the evangelical church the, in America and the world, you have basically two divides. You have what, um, uh, I'm using the word continua, continuationist, meaning just from the word continue, that uh, speaks about how the gifts of the Spirit, all the spiritual gifts are continued. There's no interruption that, as we read in the New Testament, those gifts still continue on. And then you have uh, a large segment that, we would, that would use the word cessationist. And just think of the word cease, cease and desist, cease, uh, meaning that the gifts, uh, you know, some of them, not all of them, they wouldn't say the gift of helps or service, but as we'll talk about tonight, when we talk about sign gifts, they would say, no, those were limited to the New Testament, and more specifically, those were limited to the apostolic age, okay? Uh, again, this, this was in last week's handout, uh, cessationist, the view that the miracle gifts of tongues, healing, um, uh, that those were limited to the apostles. Uh, when they died, those sign gifts died out. They were no longer necessary, uh, continuationist, meaning that all the spiritual gifts, including healing, tongues, miracles, etc., they're still in operation today. Maybe not to the extent, again, there's a variety of ways and views, but it generally is saying that we believe that those gifts, there's, uh, they're, they're available and continued in some form or fashion today. Um, last week, we spent a little time in looking at a little timeline of uh, church history in the 18th century, 19th century, and 20th century regarding what uh, different, you could put different labels on it, of a uh, renewal of the Holy Spirit, an emphasis of the Holy Spirit uh, that predates, uh, the Pen uh, not Pentecost, but uh, that's a little further back, but uh, the uh, Pentecostal outpouring, the Pentecostal movement that usually dates around 1900, 1901, we kind of went back and saw that there was, there was uh, pastor and, and uh, evidence in the early uh, 19th century in 1822, a guy named Edward Irving um, that was a Presbyterian, uh, the Church of Scotland Presbyterian, uh, who was a little controversial because he believed that, hey, these things are still available, we can pray for the sick, we can believe in the, the same apostolic gifts, and then when you came into the 20th century, 1900, 1901, we saw what became known as the birth of the Pentecostal movement, uh, denominations like the Assemblies of God, Church of God, Pentecostal Holiness, and all Church of God in Christ, which was primarily African-American Pentecostal denomination, uh, and a variety of offshoots from that all trace their roots back to 1901 and that beginning of the Pentecostal movement, about 1910-11, Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, 
Fast forward up to the 60s, the charismatic movement, which is distinct from the Pentecostal movement. There's still uh, a recognition of the uh, gift of the Holy Spirit, but the, in the 60s and 70s and early part of really 60s and 70s primarily is what it, we would refer to as the charismatic renewal. That was where mainline denominations, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, United Church Christ, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they were beginning to experience this quote-unquote baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, they wouldn't consider themselves Pentecostals, but now you had these mainline denominations. You had Roman Catholics coming in mass to meetings and being claiming to be filled with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues and the gift of healing and, and, and all those spiritual gifts. And so the charismatic renewal was uh, massive and, and probably connected to that. Uh, if you saw the movie Jesus Revolution, they didn't get too much in that, but that was really part of that, Chuck Smith, Calvary Chapel in, in California with all the, you know, the hippies and, and that renewal in 1967, all that was part of that charismatic renewal wave that was a big part of, uh, of our church, of American church history. And then you had what is called the third wave, uh, for lack of a better term, and that was where people like John Wimber and individuals that began, that would be identified as evangelical, not Pentecostal, not charismatic, but they began to be open to this move of the Holy Spirit. And an emphasis upon a balance between the Word and Spirit that we don't have to throw out and be poor students of Scripture. We don't have to be poor expositional people of the Word. We can have the, the preaching and teaching of the Bible and do that with integrity and sound doctrine and at the same time be open to the work of the Holy Spirit. And that sometimes is labeled third wave, but that primarily is that move among evangelical churches. John Wimber began the Vineyard Churches, and if you're familiar with the Vineyard Churches, uh, and again, that's a kind of an overly uh, super concise view of doing that. And the reason I took a little time to do that with a little bit of church history is because it was significant Specifically in the 20th century, um, that this emphasis on a renewal of the Holy Spirit, whether you identified as Pentecostal, baptism in the Holy Spirit, because in much of the church at large, the emphasis on the renewal of the Spirit, the spiritual gifts, all those things was basically somewhat ignored. Uh, before I came to church and I just randomly pulled some uh, more theology books from my uh, library, and, and I just found it interesting as I scanned through them. Uh, this one here is uh, a set I have by by individual by name of John Owen. I think that this uh, volume was published, not that this is that old, this is a reprint, but John Owen was considered the prince of the Puritan writers. I think this is one of 16 volumes that I have, but this entire volume here is from John Owen. It's very dense print and reading, very thorough, very sound. But this entire volume is on the Holy Spirit. But there's nothing in here that, has, that mentions spiritual gifts. In this big book, very thorough, on the Spirit and the, and the work of Christ and sanctification and the work of the Spirit and regeneration. and I mean, great biblical truths, but silent on spiritual gifts, all right? And then uh, I pulled this one out. This is uh, by the man of, uh, named James Pettigrew Boyce, and uh, this is an abstract of systematic theology. James Pettigrew Boyce was the founder of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, that's still going on today. Some of you may be familiar with Albert Moeller. Albert Moeller is the president of the Southern Seminary. And this is kind of one of the uh, early uh, Southern Baptist uh, works on theology that uh, very sound, nothing unbiblical, very uh, thorough biblically, but nothing about the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life apart from just salvation and, and that type of thing. Uh, nothing in there about gifts, nothing in there about the role of gifts in the church, nothing, nothing at all, silent on that. And then I pulled this one, and this is uh, Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. You can see 
little nighttime reading you could have, and uh, very dense. And again, uh, Louis Burkhoff is one of the premier Reformed theologians, and uh, this is uh, uh, one of those essential uh, conservative biblical theological works, and uh, nada, nothing, nothing. Now, I'm not saying you don't talk about the Holy Spirit, but in relationship to the work of the Spirit and spiritual gifts and operation of the church, nothing. So, in just that sampling, and, and you know, there's exceptions, but the reason I point that out is that when this re- renewal emphasis on the Holy Spirit in the church and the life of the believer began to take place, it was significant because of the silence that had gone on for so many years. Not everywhere, but in primarily a lot of what I would say your conservative uh, evangelical churches since the Reformation. One key work, and I think this was published in 1918, uh, that was significant is by the, man, by the name of B.B. Warfield. Benjamin Breckeridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, wrote a little book called Counterfeit Miracles. And uh, this probably has been one of the more influential books in the Reformed tradition because he took a very strong position that we'll look at a little bit tonight that the, what we would call the charismata, the spiritual gifts that we looked at, the specifically sign gifts of, uh, that were, he would say that those were strictly limited to the apostles. And I won't read you the quote, but just right here, there he starts off and essentially sets forth the view that the, uh, these were gifts of the apostles, and when the apostles died, those particular sign gifts died with them. So we have the Bible, and that is sufficient for what we need. And uh, so it would be errant to believe or to uh, look to any kind of continuation of these gifts that were exclusively the work uh, and use of the apostles. So we want to kind of delve in this a little bit, and you have your outline there, and I printed out uh, some things there for us to look at. And so the, the question before us to, tonight looking at is kind of starting out with an, the argument, and I, and I use the word argument, position, whatever you want to say, is did, does the Bible support uh, that the spiritual gifts, and again, we're primarily talking about those, uh, those sign gifts, remember? Those sign gifts, because that's where the rub is, that's where the controversy is concerning those sign gifts. And did those end when the, John the Apostle was the last apostle uh, living, and when he died, that apostolic purpose for those particular gifts uh, died uh, with the apostles because they were signs or authentication uh, of the calling of the apostle. Uh, there in your outline under number two, I've got some scriptures there in Ephesians 2, 8, uh, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 19 through 20, uh, says, you are therefore now no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, verse 20, having been built on the foundation, the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So those who would say, no, these gifts have in it, there's a verse that says that this was only foundational, but that doesn't say yay or nay about, it just says, it doesn't say that it was limited to those apostles and what prophets and so, but it just says that in the building of the church, it is foundational, but that's a scripture that certainly those brothers and sisters that would hold uh, to a ending uh, would point to that they were just foundational of these sign gifts. And when I talk about sign gifts, I have 1 Corinthians 12 there that's probably the most illustrative in mentioning those sign gifts. And he says, uh, verse 8, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. Verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. So that's probably the biggest list among all the various categories in Scripture that we looked at a few weeks back that lists those particular gifts that, they, that the, the 
view is that those things were necessary for the establishment of the church. They were part of that establishing the foundation of the apostles, and those sign gifts have ended. Um, verse uh, 28 of 1 Corinthians 12 there, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after the miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and variety of tongues. So the argument is, and again, this is the bottom of your outline, the argument or the position of a traditional evangelical view, and when I say that, this would be positions like people that I benefit by and I listen to and I greatly admire, and they're brothers and sisters in the church. And, and so, again, this is, not a, uh, this is not a who's in, who's out of the kingdom kind of view. But, you know, folks like a John MacArthur or Chuck Swindoll or David Jeremiah, um, and again, on and on, uh, would, would hold to a view that these, these particular sign gifts uh, are not normative uh, to be expected to be used in the church today. Those were unique, and I want to make an emphasis of this, they were unique to the specific ministry of the apostles. So the first argument is the sign gifts were uniquely or exclusively connected to the 12 apostles. And so uh, I thought it'd be helpful Again, all we want to do is be Bereans. I don't have an agenda here. We just want to, we just, this is pertinent to a discussion of the Holy Spirit, and we want to be good students of Scripture. So we just want to kind of address these and, and see where Scripture ends. And the uh, proof or non proof of any of these do not necessarily prove one way or the other about a person's spiritual giftedness or not. But this is a big position by those within. Uh, the evangelical church that would say that would certainly not identify with any sense of a current understanding of that the, we could um, that these spiritual gifts, uh, these sign gifts, could be expected to be utilized in the church. They would say no; those were unique uh, in a point in time. And I've got some bullet points there. They would say it's limited to authenticate that the apostles were sent by Jesus. So that's why. They did healings. That's why they did miracles, because it showed they were legit, right? You with me? Okay, so that's what, that's what they're, they were for, all right? Uh, that they were legitimate apostles uh, that were, God was being used. Remember, the New Testament was being written and developed uh, by Paul and Peter and John and, and in that correspondence in various ways, and so the apostles certainly had a unique role, and we don't dispute they had a unique role. Nobody's arguing that. Uh, that when the last apostle died, the necessity for these proofs ended because they were connected to the apostles. You don't need them if you don't have any more apostles. Also, this understanding would accept and believe that in looking at the book of Acts, that we shouldn't look to the book of Acts as kind of a paradigm of church activity today but that was unique once in a lifetime history that was unique in the establishment of the church. But that doesn't necessarily mean that in the book of Acts, we should expect that things that happen in the book of Acts, we should not expect that today because that was unique history. And there's a whole argument that, and again, some of these are just theological arguments to prove or disprove a certain view but we shouldn't take, they look at history, or they look at the book of Acts, which Acts is history. Acts is historical record of the founding of the, the church, the, you know, the birth of the church. And they would argue and say that we should not build doctrine based upon the narrative part of history, but we want to build our doctrine upon the teaching portions, portions of Scripture, like the epistles of Paul, uh, the teachings of Jesus, Again, we shouldn't look to the book of Acts as a pattern or a paradigm because that was a unique uh, time in history that the apostles were being used of God in establishing the church. Uh, and the last, again, is related to that. All the miracles or miraculous sign gifts were uniquely done by the apostles. So let's kind of do a little uh, quick uh, reading and see, and again, this does not going to prove one way or the other. It's just, we're just looking at this position 
And we want to just see if just a cursory glance at Scripture, if this holds water, okay? Again, this may have nothing to do whether a person believes in certain gifts or accept those or not. We're not talking about that. We're just saying that this is a big uh, statement and position. Arnie, you went to Moody Bible Institute, and I would bet you your left toe, that that was a clear theological position of Moody Bible Institute. It's the standard view among the conservative evangelical um, uh, brothers and sisters, okay? So let's just kind of look at this, and they're all kind of written out there. They're not going to be on the screen. They're written out there, and I'm going to go through this relatively quickly, and I have this written out, so hopefully you can take and look at it at a later time. But let's just do a cursory uh, reading here and highlight and look and see if, again, our, our discussion is related to does the Bible support, does the Bible support that the sign gifts were exclusively and only demonstrative or demonstrated through the apostles, all right? So here in Acts chapter 2, very important, famous, important place uh, to begin and that is, of course, on the day of Pentecost and uh, Acts 2. And again, I'm just going to read it from the outline there so you can follow along. Uh, of course, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all in one place. Remember, Jesus told them to go and wait for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. In verse 4, uh, that uh, the sound from, I'm sorry, verse 2, the sound from heaven is a rushing mighty wind. Verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues, and that word is dialects, that was, that's languages, it's different than what we find in the glossolalia, the Greek word for tongues uh, in 1 Corinthians, but they began to demonstrate this filling by this uh, unique gift of speaking in, in tongues and languages, and then you skip down to verse 17, and Peter gets up to speak and he quotes from the prophet Joel and says that, uh, and this is that which the prophet Joel Foretold, and then he says in verse 17, And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit uh, on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall do what? All right, so we got a little issue there, right? It says all, all, all flesh, all means all. Your sons and daughters, okay? We could kind of like, okay, sons, we could say, well, he was just talking about the 12 apostles. But then he says daughters, or he doesn't. Joel the prophet said it. He's just quoting. He says, your sons and daughters shall prophesy, shall speak forth the word. Uh, your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And it goes on. So right there, you've got to say, okay, what do we do with that? It says, spirit is poured out. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Well, if we are limiting the gift of prophecy just to apostles, you gotta, you got to say, okay, how does that fit? Let's go to the next one, Acts chapter 9. And here's a situation uh, that Paul uh, or Saul of Tarsus in uh, chapter 8, remember he had that uh, dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, and, uh, and he saw Christ, and Christ uh, called him uh, to himself. And then we have this situation in Acts 9 by the name of this man by the name of Ananias. Ananias is not an apostle. We don't know much about him. And it says in verse 10 that there was a certain disciple. Again, he's not even among the 12 disciples. Remember, the Bible uses the word disciple in two different ways. Sometimes it'll refer to the disciples, oftentimes talking about the 12, the 12 that were with Jesus. But then it oftentimes uses the word disciple just in a general sense of those because disciple means student or follower. So it's just a general term. And he's called a disciple. He doesn't know, he's not among the twelve, but he's a disciple. And he's at Damascus, named Ananias. And notice this, he's not an apostle. And yet he experiences a what Before, with the Lord? A vision. The Lord speaks to him. And he said, uh, and the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias said, here, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, uh, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. All right? 
So we drop down to verse 17, and Ananias, this non-apostle, went his way and entered the house to this future apostle, and notice what this non-apostle does. He does what? He lays hands on him. Entered the house and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me. So this Ananias is making a claim that Jesus Christ himself, the same one that called Saul, Paul, sent him to Paul, or Saul here, for his name was changed, that the Lord Jesus who appeared to you, that he sent me that you may be healed, that you may receive your sight, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it says, verse 18, Immediately there fell from his eyes, Saul, something like scales, and Paul received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So here again, you've got a situation. If we're saying, no, all those sign gifts were only uniquely and exclusively the uh, giftings, uh, the property of the twelve apostles, here you've got Ananias. He's not an apostle. We don't even... You know, he's just, he's just a believer in Jesus, and yet, what does he do? He experiences a vision. He lays hands on who would be later a future apostle. He, he exercises a gift of healing by the word of the Lord. So you got Ananias there. Drop down to number three. You got Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion, but he feared God, verse 2. And in verse 3... Here is this devout man who feared God, and it says in verse 3 that at the ninth hour of the day, he, Cornelius, clearly in a vision, and Saul clearly in a vision, an angel of God coming in and saying to him. So now you've got Cornelius, not an apostle, it doesn't even say he's, he's a believer per se, it kind of he speaks about him as a devout man who feared God. He's a non-Jew, and here he's experiencing a legitimate vision by an angel that's speaking to him and, and talking to him. Now, something in the white space I didn't include there is simultaneously, this is the vision that Peter is experiencing. Remember where he saw those unclean animals in that vision, and, and uh, the Lord says, don't curse that which I've called clean, take up and eat. All that's going on in between that white space there. I didn't put it in there. So after all that goes on, Peter goes to where Cornelius is. Peter's an apostle, and he goes to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, which was radical in this period, in this building of the church. And the friends of Cornelius said to Peter, verse 22, Cornelius, a centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among, the, among all the nation of the Jews, Notice the language here, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you, Mr. Apostle, to his house and to hear words from you. All right? Verse 30. So Cornelius said, as he's testifying about what took place, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour, again he's telling this to Peter, I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. Skip down. And now we see that Peter, who was speaking these words, that as Peter was ministering the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision, that's the fellow Jews that were believer, who believed, were astonished because the whole idea now is the fulfillment of, of what Peter spoke of in Acts 2.17 when he said "All my, my, the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh, that's Jews and Gentiles, and here we see evidence of the engrafting now of Gentiles, and these Jews who were believers were astonished at seeing what was happening, and as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Spirit, they were astonished because the gift of the Spirit has been poured out to the Gentiles also. All I want you to note there is that here you have a non-apostle experiencing a vision, an angel of the Lord speaking to him, that's a pretty dramatic sign gift, I think, right? Now again, that doesn't, that just, so if again we're saying that, I'll say they, but the argument is that, that these things were only to be done 
in and through the apostles. I don't know how you put Ananias in there. Acts 13. Here we have the church at Antioch. And what I think as you read it, that the implication is the plain reading of the Scripture implies and clearly presents that some things were normative behaviors in the church. Look at this. Verse 1. This is number 4 in your outline. Acts 13. Now, in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain what? It says there were prophets and teachers. And then it names some of them. Barnabas. Simon, who was called Niger, that's not Simon Peter, Lucius of Cyrene, Menanian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Notice, and as they ministered to the Lord, you don't have any apostles present. Now you can argue there's a future one there with Saul, but you don't have any apostles present. And in the midst, it says, verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, prophesied through these per people, or one of them at least, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they, whoever these prophets and teachers were, and it names some of them, laid hands on them and sent them on their way to do the work of the Lord. Again, you have, have non-apostles exercising and receiving and operating with some level of the prophetic. You with me? All right. Acts 19, number 5. You have these disciples of John the Baptist. Unique group, Acts 19. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples. Remember I said disciples doesn't always mean the twelve. It can just be a general meaning. Here's some students. Here's some followers. And finding some disciples, but their implication is that they're believers. And finding some disciples, verse 2, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? And they said to him, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's. That's John the Baptist's baptism. They were disciples of John the Baptist. And verse 6, And when Paul laid hands on them, these disciples of John the Baptist, Paul the Apostle laid hands on them, but notice, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they did what? They spoke with tongues, and they what? Prophesied. Now, if Paul did that, we'd say, okay, well, that kind of fits in that category. But again, now we have these nameless individuals that we only God knows, and they're exercising the gift of prophecy. Okay? Number six, Philip's daughters. Acts 21. It's got a, several things in it. Acts 21. Uh, it came to pass that when we had departed from them, we set sail. And I'll skip down towards the latter part of verse 3. We landed in Tyre, T-Y-R-E, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. Verse 4, and finding disciples, that means followers of Jesus, not the twelve finding some followers of Jesus. We stayed there seven days. More than likely, these individuals out in this uh, part, like in different parts like Antioch, do you remember when the persecution came to the church there at Jerusalem that it caused them to scatter and leave Jerusalem because of the persecution that was taking place after uh, Stephen was stoned? There was great persecution, and so many of the Christians fled there and went into non-Jewish territories, and more than likely, I bet if you trace their roots back, that's how they are there and how they uh, are believers living there, and they shared the gospel and began to do the works of the Lord. Verse 4, and so uh, Paul, finding some disciples, they, I'm sorry, is that, yeah, stayed there seven days. Let me go back. 
They landed in Tyre. They got a ship. They've docked it there, and they found some disciples. And so Luke, who's the writer of Acts, said they stayed there seven days. And they, these disciples, look at this carefully, these followers, these nameless followers, told Paul through the Spirit. These mystery disciples, we don't know who they are, prophesied to the Apostle Paul. What? They said, don't go up to Jerusalem. That's what it says. Through the Spirit, they spoke the word of the Lord to Paul. Interesting. Skip down to verse 8 and 9. Ship is pulling out the next day. They're on their way to another. They're going to Caesarea. And they entered into the house of this Philip, the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven uh, of the uh, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who did what? So now not only do you have these prophetesses, but they're they're women. The world's coming to an end. But it doesn't clarify, and it just states it as a matter of accepted fact. You with me? So you got these women, these daughters of Philip prophesying. You've got these nameless disciples that are sharing, speaking the word of the Spirit to an apostle. Same chapter, you got a man by the name of Agabus. And they stayed many days, verse 10, and a certain what? Prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to to us, remember Luke is writing this as the recorder. When he came to us, Agabus took Paul's belt, bound his hands and feet, and said, To an apostle. A non-apostle is going to prophesy to an apostle. And he said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Very similar to what was said earlier by those nameless disciples up in Tyre, right? Don't, uh, you know, don't go. But then we see in verse 13 and 14 that as Paul heard it, Paul's mind was already made up. And so Paul said, and again, speaking really prophetically of Paul's eventual arrest by the Gentiles, the Romans, that would eventually wind him up in Rome where he, we know from history, where he was executed and died. But Paul's already prepared to to follow the leading of the Lord. And Paul says to this Agabus, the prophet, he doesn't say that's a false prophecy. He says, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning to be put in the hands of the Gentiles. And it says, and so when he, Paul, would not be persuaded, we see saying the will of the Lord be done. That's interesting because it's something we'll talk about when we talk about prophecy. This is a little hint of it that I would suggest that here was a man that the Bible says spoke by the Holy Spirit. And yet Paul heard it, received it, evaluated it, and it didn't compute with what Paul, apparently the Lord had already spoken to Paul. So that would suggest that in the New Testament there may be prophecy that is not on the par of prophecy Bible authority, but that prophecy that can be spoken that may or may not be authoritative depending on the situation. Because you remember in 1 John 4, 1, John the Apostle says to test the prophets 
Test them. Doesn't say test the Apostle Paul. Don't test it because they are speaking unique authoritatively the Word of God. But it says that in this operation of prophecy, in fact, 1 Corinthians 14, 29 says, let two or three prophesy and everybody else judge what's being spoken. So all I'm saying is, is we're just talking about this discussion here. If we're going to say, and we're kind of zeroing in and talking about prophecy, if prophecy is only and exclusively something done by the apostles, we've got a lot of holes because we see a lot of situations that don't fit. And a lot of non-apostles functioning in this particular gift. And as I said, this doesn't necessarily prove one thing or the other. It's just, we're just saying, does this statement that's a broad accepted view, is this something that Scripture supports? All right, let me go real quick. Number eight on the Romans 12. And all I want you to see in Romans 12 is that the church in Rome that Paul is writing to, when you read verses 3 through 6, He's speaking about spiritual gifts as normative church activity. He says, By the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly. Uh, each one has the measure of faith. The end of verse 3, verse 4. Many members in one body. All members do not have the same function. Language he uses in 1 Corinthians. So we, being many in one body in Christ, individually as members of another, having then gifts... Differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us do what with them? Use them. And he says, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. And he goes on. Now, what's interesting is, is if, they would, if, if a person would say, well, these sign gifts like prophecy is only the exclusive operation of an apostle or under the authority of the apostle, Look at that verse right before the one I printed out there in Romans 1, 10 through 11. Paul has not even visited this church in Rome. He hasn't even been there. He hasn't even been there to give them the green light of authority to do what they're doing if these gifts are limited to the exclusive dispensary of an apostle. Paul hasn't even been there. And yet, he's doing what? He's encouraging them to operate in these giftings in the church. That according to the measure of faith, let them operate. And if it's prophecy, prophesy. And number nine, Paul, what he told Timothy. Again, when you read the New Testament, it just seems to be that this is kind of just somewhat normative. Now again, we want to delve and pick apart and Try to understand what exactly prophecy is and what it isn't and where, where it gets maybe run off the rails. And, but he says, I charge you, I commit to you, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies made concerning you. Drop, you go down to chapter 4. He tells Timothy, do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by what? Prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. Doesn't say Paul's not saying, I did it. He's saying it was done by who? Eldership. Elders in the church. And then 1 Thessalonians. Again, I just put these out there to show you whether just in just a cursory way of looking through these, if this particular view is really strong. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, he says, uphold the weak, be patient with all, verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil, but also pursue what is good, verse 17. Pray without ceasing, verse 18. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. Verse 19, do not what? Quench, stifle the spirit. And the very next, remember Paul didn't you write in verse numbers, that was put in later. So when he says, don't quench the Holy Spirit, How's he saying you quench the Holy Spirit? The next verse says, don't despise prophecies. Test all things, hold fast to what is good. So he's not saying stop all that. Even to Corinth that was doing things a little extreme, 
He doesn't say, stop it. Stop it. No, what does he do? He gives them biblical paradigms of how to function with these gifts, in my understanding, and do it in a sound, orderly, biblical way. Okay? So, again, this doesn't have anything to do with whether a person accepts the role of gifts, prophecy, tongues, any of that. That isn't what this is about. It's just addressing this one big position and saying that all these spiritual gifts were uniquely and exclusively done through the 12 apostles. Now, just in what we did tonight, would we, would we say that that's accurate or not? I, I don't see it. I don't see it there. So, now, there may be some other things, and we'll talk about those in the coming weeks, regarding spiritual gifts, but I just want to address this one and say that isn't really a good, sound position because just in that reading of Scripture, we see lots of instances where sign gifts were being operated, on, operated through non-apostles throughout the New Testament. Right? I mean, you don't have to agree with it. I'm just saying. I, and again, that has nothing to do with what a person believes or doesn't believe about spiritual gifts or the sign gifts. All right. I'm going to switch gears just for a minute because of time. I'm kind of an odd duck because I actually can remember weird things. I forget very obvious things, but I actually can remember certain things that I buy, especially when it comes to books. And I actually remember that when I bought this in 1993, I remember exactly where I was, and I can literally close my eyes and picture when I saw it and picked it up and read and bought it. I kind of have a weird personal friendship with books or whatever. That's why it's so hard for me to get rid of them, because my wife says, like, I'll take books to the used, this used book place in Orlando, where sometimes they give you store credit, which is kind of stupid, to give you store credit to buy more books. She says, I don't get it. You take three boxes to Orlando, and you come back with one full box of new books. How does, what kind of, you know, what kind of drug dealer is that, right? But, um, but Jack Deere, who I want to just share with you a little bit, and we're going to watch a little clip. We've got just about 10 minutes to do it. Jack Deere wrote this book, and this is the older version this is the newer version, but it was called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. The new one, which is an updated one called Why I'm Still Surprised by the Power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I bought some copies. I can't give them to you, but I want you to watch a clip. And if you want to buy one of these, they're $15. And that's even cutting it a little under, but I kept it at $15. The church has to pay for the bill. And uh, I'll keep them for about uh, two weeks. So if you don't have the money tonight, but Miriam will be in the back, and if you want to write an IOU, but make sure you pay for it in the next two weeks. Don't give it to anybody on Sunday. Pay for it on Wednesday, because we want to, don't put any money in the box or do it through the offering. We want to make sure it gets connected to the bill. But if you'd like a copy of this, and what makes Jack Deere unique is Jack Deere was a former theological professor at Dallas Theological Seminary of... Hebrew and Greek and Old Testament theology. Smart guy, right? And Dallas Theological Seminary is probably one of the premier great biblical seminaries, but it's also known as one of the seminaries that has had historically the strongest position against any type of current work of the Holy Spirit. They would, everything I said tonight they would, again, have arguments and disagreement, and that's okay. But David Jeremiah graduated from there. Charles Stanley graduated from there. I mean, you name it. Just a hoot. Charles Ryrie, if you've ever heard of the Ryrie study by, I mean, he was a professor there. So that is one of the premier. He taught there. And as he began to change some of his views, he found he couldn't work there any longer. And I want you to see this little clip. Like I said, it's just 10 minutes, so we just have enough time but it might whet your appetite because I, like I said, I, I don't, I wouldn't say I agree with everything in this book. Some things I'm still, but I remember when I read this book, bought it when it just came out in 1993, 
a particular time in my life, it really had a profound impact in helping me get some balance in some areas of my life. I'm still trying to be a good student of the Scripture. I'm trying to work things out. But I, I would say that would be in my top ten books of things that are helpful. And it's not just theology. It's his story, weaving in Bible teaching of the Spirit. Very readable, very understandable. But uh, watch this clip and... I was I was uh, wasn't raised in a Christian home. I was raised in a traumatic home, and at 17, I heard the gospel for the first time that Jesus died on the cross for me, and if I would trust Him to forgive me and give me a new life, He would come into my heart and never leave. And I did. And um, almost immediately, my my father committed suicide when I was 12. Mm. So I, I I grew up in those formative years without a father, and my my father wasn't my father and my mom were at war from the time I was about five or six. So basically, even before my father killed himself, he was really gone. Her, her anger uh, drove him away and uh, his absentee made her more angry and, and just, he wasn't around uh, a lot. And, and uh, after he killed himself, her whole family just went south. Uh, we, we saw things in our home we should never see. There was a parade of men that came into uh, our home. Um, at, at 17, I heard the gospel though for the first time became a believer, and then God sent a whole series of spiritual fathers into my life, a phenomenal young life leader who taught me how to study Scripture, who taught me how to memorize Scripture, who taught me to read C.S. Lewis. And I became a young life leader just like him. I uh, ended up going to Dallas Seminary. And when I got to seminary, um, I, I, uh, I didn't know this before, but uh, – Greek and Hebrew were not just easy for me. They were things I love, and I, and I became exceptional in Greek and Hebrew. And when I graduated, I became a professor of Old Testament exegesis and Semitic languages at Dallas Seminary. And I also taught Greek there, uh, Conde, the head of the Greek department, into letting me teach Greek one year. Um, so that that was kind of my uh, story. Oh, and in the process of going to Dallas Seminary, uh, I came to believe that all the gifts of the Spirit have been done away with, all the supernatural. I divided the gifts of the Spirit into, I didn't, you really don't want to call a gift of the Spirit natural, do you? I mean, a gift of the Spirit, natural. But we sort of did that. And then, uh, and so there are these things like teaching and uh, all that. But then there would be supernatural. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then there were these supernatural gifts like miracles and, and uh, healings and prophecy. And we just said, all those things are done away with. And the reason that God let the apostles do uh, miracles was to show their trustworthy teachers of doctrine. Now we got their doctrine in the New Testament, so we don't need uh, miracles anymore. And, and I started a church which became really successful, taught my church that, taught my seminary students that, and uh, was just sailing along fine. for about. I was a professor for about 12 years and got challenged— by a person that I respected. He was one of our heroes. We used all of his books in our church. His name was Dr. John White. He was a professor of uh, psychiatry, and uh, he was a leading uh, uh, author for InterVarsity Press, best-selling author. We used all of his books, and we got him to come to our church and do uh, a conference. We were also a wealthy church, and we could afford to get anybody, bring him from anywhere in the world. And Dr. White shocked me when he told me that he believed in healing. He didn't just believe in healing. He'd seen healing. And I couldn't believe this because I knew any of the scriptures. I knew he was really intelligent and he was really godly. I mean, I felt like he was way more godly than I was. And I'd never had a credible witness in my life like that. And so he didn't convince me. But that conversation, that first conversation with him so disquieted me that it got me to go back and look up every single healing story in the, in the uh, New Testament. Uh, uh, just to interrupt you real quick, because I just want to ask, when you say you found out that he believed in healing, because even cessationists today will say, well, I believe God heals. Like I've, I've heard you quote a, pre uh, a preacher who says, I believe in healing, just not healers. Yeah. So could you qualify that for us? What, what did that mean that he believed in healing? Uh, so when he said he believed in healing, it was more like he believed in the gift of, of healing. And, and I really didn't believe in healing. I mean, I, I, I thought, well, you know, God can do anything, but I never knew anyone that he healed. Mm -hmm. I never heard a credible mm -hmm. healing story. So, so really I was, you know, agnostic about healing, uh, period. But he, he not only said he, that he had a belief in healing, he told me a healing story where bone changed under his hand. Mm. 
And then he told me another healing story where he and his wife prayed for a, for a, a little three-year-old boy covered with oozing eczema. Only he didn't say oozing eczema. He used the medical word for it, which I've forgotten. But like <laughs> reminding me, this is a doctor, you <laughs> know. Smart guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and somebody who's a psychiatrist who knows the difference between psychosomatic illness and, and you know, real illness. Mm-hmm. And, he, and this little boy was covered with oozing eczema. They had to, he kept his parents up for 24 hours. They had to catch him before they could pray for him. And the second that John and Lori laid their hands on him, he fell asleep. And within 20 minutes, the oozing dried up and his skin started to change. The next morning, it was soft as a baby's completely mm. healed. He told me those two stories. And not, not like this was a one-off thing, but like this was normal. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd never heard anybody say that. And, and we were asking him to come to our uh, church. And he said, but if he came to our church, that one of the things he would want to do is do a lecture on healing. And I go, mm, okay. Uh, and then he said this. Jack, if I come to your church, uh, I would also want to pray for healing. I wouldn't just want to talk about it. And I said, in the church? You want to pray for healing in the church? And he said, well, we can talk about the details when I get there. But I wouldn't want to just come and talk about something and not do it. And I'm thinking, why not? We do that all the time in seminary. <laughs> I mean, we tell people, you got to pray, but we don't have to pray. Uh, or and us, us professors who never lead anyone to the Lord, but you go, oh, you got to lead people to the Lord. But we're not doing that. It's just tell people what they need to do. You don't really have to do it. Um, so this is like a new way of thinking. And, and I said, oh, Dr. White, I, ew, um, I, I want you to come to the church. And, and you can give that lecture and, and we'll figure out some way for you to pray for the sick. But there's six other elders beside me, and they're waiting in a meeting, and I got to go tell them this, and I don't know how they're going to respond. And he said, uh, well, Jack, I, I totally understand understand your fears, and if the elders decide it's not time to have me, you and I are going to meet another time, and we'll start our friendship there. And uh, what that conversation got me to do was go back and look up every single healing story in the New Testament take notes about every single healing story. This was how I studied the scripture anyway. From mm-hmm. Whatever subject I was doing, I would just look up every reference to it, and then I would take notes, and then I would organize it into like a systematic theology. And, and, and so I had one question I asked every single healing story, and it was, God, why did you do it? Why did you do it in the first place? Because we said he did it to show that the apostles were trustworthy teachers of doctrine. Now we got the doctrine, so we don't need the scripture. So here's what happened. Now, oh, and I just took my professor's word for that when I was a student. And then I told that to my students, you know, without ever having looked up every healing story, mm-hmm. but just confident that my pre- professors would never have lied to me. Um, so I looked up every healing story, and there's not one single healing story in the New Testament that says God healed to show the apostles were trustworthy teachers of doctrine. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. Would we want the authority of the Bible resting on a miracle? Really? Or do we want it resting on the voice of God? It's authoritative because God spoke it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I found 10 or 12 other reasons why God healed. When, Like the, he, the, the funeral procession's going by in Luke 7, and, and there's the, the widow following the coffin, and her, her uh, son is in the coffin. And it says, Jesus had compassion on her and raised the, her son. Why did he do it? Not to prove he was the son of God. He did it because he had compassion on her. That is a character of God. And then he does it because uh, he has mercy on people. There are like 10 or 12 reasons that the New Testament says he healed, and they're all rooted in the eternal character of God, not in changing historical circumstances. Mm -hmm. So after four months, I believed in healing, but it was only a theoretical belief because they haven't prayed for anybody. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I believe that God was speaking today um, because I, I... could not explain it away in the New Testament. He spoke to Jesus more than anybody. So here's a perfect person with perfect knowledge of the Bible. He's got the whole Bible memorized, and he knows the meaning of every single verse. And he says, I only do what I see my father doing. It's not my teaching. It's the teaching my father gives to me. So if this perfect person needed to hear God's voice to fulfill his highest calling, how much more does the person like me? So that's the state I came to after four months. I didn't hear the voice of the Lord. I didn't see a miracle. Um, and I didn't know how you even go about it because I had no mentor. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay, so you talked a little bit about the 
trustworthy teachers of doctrine and how that was one of the reasons for the miracles. At least that's what that was your former belief. And that's what uh, a lot of the cessationists repeat. Well, well, one of the verses that I hear cessationists go to sometimes is Hebrews chapter two, uh, the first few verses. I thought I'd read these to you and uh, and just have you respond. Does this teach uh, or, well, we, we know what you think. So why doesn't this teach that the uh, miracles came to show that apostles were trustworthy uh, instructors in doctrine? So uh, Hebrews 2, verse, verses 1 through 4, So therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we escape so great a salvation? And then here it's coming up the, the key part. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So so what's being borne witness to here? The message of the messengers. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah. <laughs> it's the message. the message. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, signs and wonders do confirm the message. They don't confirm the messengers. And doesn't that make sense? What mm-hmm. God, God is into confirming his son, mm-hmm. you, you know, n- not, not us messengers. Um, I mean, it's true. He'll raise up a prophet in the Old Testament and then in, in the kind of the prophetic words and all that gives him authority. But in the New Testament, he's confirming his son mm-hmm. and the miracles confirm the message that mm-hmm. we're, we're hearing. And that's what, that's actually one of the purposes of the miracles. Now, here, and here's the rub on that one. Okay, if people in the first century who had Jesus present needed miracles to confirm the testimony about Jesus, how much more do we? Might we need that? When, too. when did that go away? When did that need go away? 